there's a bit of luck, but there's also a bit of luck that you create because you're persistently trying. You're you're doing the work to train. You're you're signing up for shorter races to get yourself into shape for the hundred mile distance. You're putting your name into the lottery, making sure you qualify for different things. You're eating healthy. You're doing all the things to try to put yourself in the best position to have the opportunity. Um, and then you know you, your name gets called. And you just have to be ready to embrace it and go on that that ride, that experience. So for me, that was um, really the catalyst was I got in. But really the catalyst before that was all these other little dreams. Um, and at the time they were big uh, to just to even toe the line at one of these races. And then the curiosity of, of mind was, well, I know f- almost 40 people have done the last great race. You know, how far can I push it? So that was just sort of a natural... I think characteristic that I have. I, I'm interested in the history of, of our sport and where people have taken their challenges and their and their dreams. And so that's where the, the grade eight was sort of realized. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. I'm Jess, your host, and I'm here with Coach Beach and our guest today, Sean Nakamura. The YTP is about sharing stories of people looking, finding, and living their purpose. It's through this medium that we have set the intention to bring meaningful conversations to the endurance sports world, to solidify connection, and give everyone, including us, the reminder that we're never alone in our struggles, our dreams, and our endeavors. This is all to further our collective mission to create a better world, and today we're adding to that mission by bringing you the story of a runner. Sean began running nine years ago. He runs road, trail, everything from marathons to ultra-distance 200s. He works full-time and has a running streak well into the thousands. He leaves us all with zero excuse and certainly has inspired me to get my butt out of bed and lace up my shoes. Sean's fresh off the Tahoe 200, which in and of itself is a massive task, not to mention that he pushed through the final 60, yes, yeah, 60 miles in excruciating pain. But that's not all, folks. Sean's about to complete his Great 8 project that he embarked on earlier this summer, and I'm just going to let him tell you guys what that is. So Sean, thank you so much for offering us your Sunday morning, and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you guys for allowing me to have this opportunity uh, to chat with you. Tell everybody what the Great Eight is. The Great Eight is essentially a project that extends upon both the Grand Slam of ultra running, uh, the original four out of five original 100 mile races. And we, ex- we basically will take that and go uh, as far as the eight original 100 milers uh, in the US. Um, the idea came to me after learning about a project called The Last Great Race, and essentially The Last Great Race was an extension of the Grand Slam of Ultra Running, where uh, you essentially would do 600 milers in one summer. Uh, This was an invention of Ken Hamada, who's the Angeles Crest race director, and to to date, uh, just about 40 people have ever finished that. So naturally, I was researching and I thought, well, how far can I take this? Um, and I, I realized that three other people had gone as far as, as eight original 100 milers. Uh, and that dates back to everything uh, through 1991, essentially. So the races in, include everything from Old Dominion to the Mohican Trail 100 to Western States, the Vermont 100, 
Angeles Crest 100, Leadville Trail 100, and uh, uh, Wasatch Front 100. And then as, as well, there's the Arkansas Traveler, which I have not completed yet, uh, which is in, a, in about a week. Um, and that'll be the final of the, of the eight. So you did a post on Instagram, and you guys, if you're not following Sean, get on board. He's Ultra Runner SD on Instagram, and you posted about dreaming big. And so this is a huge dream, right? Like I, the logistically, you're like, you're kind of thinking and ruminating in your mind, okay, how big can I make this? How far can I push out the limits? But there's so much that goes into this, like the logistics, but not even to mention just the lottery. Like the lottery, you have to have a lottery to get into Western states. So had you tried this in prior seasons or did it, did it come this season and then just all came together? The dream was Western states. The dream's always Western states. And for a lot of us, that's, that's the process. You do everything you can to stay healthy, to train. Uh, you, tr- you put your name in the hat for Western states. And you know year after year, uh, for me, it was five years. You, uh, you try and try, and then eventually you get lucky. And this year was, was my fifth year trying. I was able to get in th- through the lottery. And that particular dream opened up the opportunity to dream even further. And I think that's one thing that we often will not realize is that by not setting a, a dream, we don't realize dreams that, that wouldn't even occur to us if we hadn't set that first dream. And I say dream big, but you really don't know the scale of the dream that you're going to chase until you set things that are fairly lofty that you're not really sure about. And once you go down those paths, they really start to open up additional dreams and challenges. So this year, when I got into Western States, I thought, okay, I I know I'm going to put my name into other lotteries. Uh, Leadville Trail was another one that's very difficult to get into from the lottery. Uh, And that, that also took me five years to actually get through. Once I got into both of those two, I knew, okay, I got to do something here. And I knew about the Grand Slam, so I thought, okay, for sure, I'm going to try to get into the Grand Slam. I knew about the last great race because I had a couple of friends. I think there have been eight people, including myself, one of my friends this year, who have completed the last great race. Only eight of us in the last 12 years. And I think it was about 40 over 30 years. And the reason for that being a little bit larger number is that it used to be easier to get into these races when no one was running 100 milers or when a very few few select uh, folks were doing this. And nowadays, as you mentioned, with the lotteries, it's, it's actually logistically almost impossible to get into the la- last great race or, the, or even the Grand Slam of ultra running, which maybe a couple hundred people have completed uh, to date. So once I got into those two key races from the lottery, I had three other um, of the last great race of the, of the six that required a lottery process, um, including Angeles Crest, including uh, Vermont, um, and Wasatch Front as well. I was able to get into Old Dominion without a lottery, and that was essentially the sixth. There's a bit of luck, but there's also a bit of luck that you create because you're persistently trying you're you're doing the work to train you're you're signing up for shorter races to get yourself into shape for the 100 mile distance you're putting your name into the lottery making sure you qualify for different things you're eating healthy you're doing all the things to try to put yourself in the best position to have the opportunity Um, and then you know your name gets called and you just have to be ready to embrace it and go on that that ride that experience so for me that was um, really the catalyst was i got in 
But really the catalyst before that was all these other little dreams. Um, and at the time they were big uh, to just to even toe the line at one of these races. And then the curiosity of, of mind was, well, I know f almost 40 people have done the last great race. You know, how far can I push it? So that was just sort of a natural, I think, characteristic that I have. I, I'm interested in the history of, of our sport and where people have taken their challenges and their, and their dreams. And so that's where the, the grade eight was sort of realized. And I understood that the scheduling of the summer would allow for, for the eight, the, for the first eight. So dreaming big also opens up the opportunity for potential failure. What's your relationship with failure? I think failure is a critical tool for growth. And um, in terms of my relationship, I mean, for example, um, even starting off as a runner, um, as, as many people know, I, I run every day. Um, when I first started, you know, from couch just to a couple of miles a day, it took me a few, you know a few weeks of failing of just not even being able to run a mile without stopping and so forth and my very first run streak was a failure i at least that's how i i looked at it at the time or someone might look at it i was trying to get 30 days in a row i got 21 days so right off the bat i was a failure my body shut down i got sick i was my body was like you know what the wtf is going on here and then i tried again you know you dust yourself off a couple weeks later i started another streak to try to get to 30 days and the rest is history I mean 3200 days and, and counting um, so from the get-go um, that was something that I was you know very aware of and um, without those moments you know you don't have the opportunity to to grow and I think that's really critical you know last year I had a, a, a bad foot injury I, I had to do all kinds of different things that were really just adaptive it was rolling with the punches um, it was understanding that my body needed this time to, to heal and so forth. And it was a, a foot injury. It allowed me to, to run, like I could run very slowly and cautiously and so forth, but I, I really couldn't push my training. Um, I really couldn't push the distance so much. Um, but you, you sort of figure out like how to get through those, those situations. Um, and I did things like I'd have a race that, you know, we plan these races so far in advance where you have you know, six to eight months out or maybe even a year, you're not going to not show up. You might have a commitment, you know, you've promised to show up and a commitment to yourself to be your best. And um, I would do things like purposefully just only run a certain distance or only run a certain speed. And the concept of a DNF or like did not finish um, or dropping to a, a shorter distance, you know, that was just um, it was kind of OK. Like I embraced the, the, the reality that that was best for me in the long term. Um, so, you know, those are the types of things that, that come up. Um, in, initially, on, from the outside, they would look like a failure. Um, but if, if there's anything that I'm, I'm comfortable with, it's sort of the long game. And so, you know, living through those moments and, and growing from them and, and having them in memory to draw from for a future um, is huge for, you know, getting you through those darker moments down the, down the, ro the road where you know you've overcome something that was very challenging. And so, yeah, I would say that, you know, I don't look at failure as necessarily a bad thing. Um, and I think it's, um, it's an absolutely critical piece to, to um, getting back out there and it continuing to evolve. So let's go back to that first failure. We'll call it failure. We like to call it opportunity because you're always yeah. learning something. And I guess that was a bad word for me to use. But in that first... 30-day challenge when you stopped at day 21 
how did you shift the mind? Because I'm sure there was a moment where you might have felt like, uh, forget this, like, this isn't going to happen. Maybe I'm not meant to run. I guess you were in weightlifting before. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. This is a sign of things that are fighting against me. How did you shift in that moment to then again start to go after that goal? I would say that I, I kind of knew that I set the goal to be achievable. So this is a great example of what I felt was, it was kind of a big goal for me at the time, but I knew pretty much anybody should be able to run 30 days in a row. Like if, even if it's a small distance and I happened to choose two miles because to me it was like 15 to 20 minutes. I have no excuses for 15, 20 minutes any day. You always have time. Like you, you just have to decide that that's going to be time for you. You set it aside and um, and you make it a priority, right? Like you, you really have to look at your hierarchy of value. And so I think what I've, I realized was, well, my body wasn't quite ready. My mind was ready for sure. I was going to do this. And I just needed a little bit of time for the body to heal. I got it like a little bit sick and run down because my body had, uh, you know, I was surprising it. I was shocking it in a way. And, um, but I knew that was going to be, you know, one of the challenges I was going to face physically in that transformation. Cause I literally was going from not being able to run a mile without stopping, you know, for a few weeks trying to build up to just start this to going a couple miles a day. Um, and you know, the joints need time to, you have all these different layers of systems in your body. Right. And, um, the mind is probably one of the stronger ones, one of the more powerful ones, both for negative and for positive. Um, and your body just has all these other layers that had to adapt and evolve. And, um, that first 21 days, it, it proved to me that I could do 21 days. So, well, heck, if I can do 21 days, why not 30? And so I was able to just reset. I had two weeks. Um, it was just probably like a cold. I probably had like cold symptoms, you know, it was um, in that sort of October to November time frame. And um, yeah, I think it was November. And then as it came out of that and felt better, I was like, I'm going to start this again. Yeah, the rest is history from that perspective. It seems as though you have this like innate, always moving forward type of programming, let's say, right? It's like it's like in your subconscious, which is our conditioned mind. And that's like, that's where our belief systems lie. That's where our, pa our patterns lie in all of our history. Were you always like this as a, as a kid? Like what was your growing up environment like? Yeah, I think my my parents and um, I had I essentially had three parents. I mean, I had my mom and dad who um, were an amazing influence uh, on my life, and then I also had uh, my grandma. Um, I called her Nana, but she she was essentially a third parent, retired by the time I was a, a little kid, um, and would take me around and you know pick me up from preschool, for example. And I had three really fantastic like parental influences from that perspective who who really instilled upon me I think just um, this this idea that like you can do anything like you you put your mind to and they were they provided me the opportunity to try all different types of things they immersed me in different types of um, experiences from all the sports you can imagine to um, you know all like musical uh, training and so forth and um, I think that definitely helped shape the way I'd see the world and how I would see, you know, challenges. Um, my dad, for sure, has always been an extremely positive person, like maybe the most positive person you'll ever meet. I mean, 
when I think of like Kipchoge and like his like his outward just beaming energy, I think of my dad. I mean, that's the kind of person he he is, and he's always been. He's extremely optimistic, and I'm I'm for certain sure certain that that's um, a big source of energy for me. And I think I've I've taken time to ingest sort of the learnings of both all my my parents and my grandma, and have chosen to to embrace a lot of those qualities. Um, f- from the example that they've set. So I, I definitely have always felt, as far as I can remember back, uh, seeing the world as the glass half full. And, and that's I'm attracted to the glass half full you know, idea, um, the optimism. I would say from my dad's perspective, I can go a little deeper there. I can, I can say that when I was a kid, uh, whether you believe in um, sort of the Tony Robbins type influence or not, like strip away all the things we know about, um, positive or negative, there is a very low period in, in my dad's life um, as my, my parents had uh, gone through a separation and all that stuff, and he was trying to find strength and energy and hope. And, um, and I was at an age where I was... I could absorb a lot of that. And so he was going through this process of reinstilling, I think, you know, hope in his world. And that transferred over to me at the same time. And um, there was just a a great deal of positivity in in that process. So I would say that that's probably at the root of a lot of uh, the way I see the world, the way I see, um, as you mentioned, like the crisis moment where it's this moment of opportunity. There's danger elements, but there's opportunity and you really, you could choose to focus on the danger or you could choose to focus on the opportunity. And um, and they're really sort of, I think, maybe basic life lesson type moments. Um, or maybe even if you were to look from the outside, they're just, well, duh, shouldn't we, you know, all see something in a particular way? It's almost so obvious when you, when you hear someone talk about it. Those little things um, would come through, those little life lessons and so I would attribute a lot of it to that that period of my life, probably. And that's such an incredible gift to grow up within that kind of power. And and what I mean by power is, yes, the optimism. Really, really powerful when there's so much there's so much about our society that is focusing on the fear, the failure as bad, things like that. Vulnerability. Sure. You know, this this ability to fail. Vulnerability is so incredibly powerful. And I can completely relate to that type of upbringing. I was, I was definitely from a very young age always told that I could do anything. Yeah. I mean, there was never a limit on, on what I could do. And my parents are, they live in New England. And, you know, my mom's on the beach in the middle of a nor'easter taking deep breaths saying, it's so crisp out here. You know, yeah. whereas everyone else is like yeah. hoarding the milk and the eggs and battening down the hatches. And she's standing in the middle of it in, in total gratitude. Do you remember as a child, like your first dream and making it happen or pursuing it, I should say? Wow. As a kid, most of my goals and dreams, I think, were related to probably sports, but not necessarily running. I was never a runner as a kid. I never would consider myself to have been a runner. I loved playing golf of all sports um, or games, depending on how you look at it. And um, and part of that was a a sort of bonding moment for my dad and I in particular. Also, my mom as well. She would join us in many occasions. But we had this very 
inexpensive like public course that was a couple miles away from our house. I would wait for my my dad uh, at the bus stop. He'd come home from work from the bus stop. He'd work in the city, um, and it probably took an hour or something. And we would go just before sunset, and in the it, it would be maybe dusk, so we could play a few holes. And um, I mean, I was probably eight, eight or nine years old. I think at, the the goals when you're that you know your scope and scale is just very different, right? Your your whole world seems like your whole hometown seems so huge, right? For example, and um, and in reality, you go back and you're like, this is this is small, this is tiny, this is. So I think in those moments, my goals were probably very small. They were, um, I want to be able to, to play, um, you know, play golf, like maybe be a scratch golfer or something like that. And, um, and, and ultimately, um, with enough time and energy and effort and practice, I was able to be a scratch golfer when I was like 13 years old. Um, and so I think that was probably one of my first introductions to setting what at the time was probably a very aggressive goal um, and and dreaming about that and dr- dreaming about sharing those those family moments and uh, and then executing it. Per your comment earlier, I mean, I had the best cheering section you could possibly imagine. So the support system of my mom, my grandmother, and my dad were just even going through a period where my parents weren't necessarily together. Um, that happened when I was about 11. Um, the support I had for my family on all levels was unparalleled. And in my world, um, you know, anything was possible for sure. So you said that when you were younger, the, um, the goals were maybe a little bit smaller scale. And there's a lot of people who, you know, are, are our age in our 40s or 30s or 20s that I hear this all the time. Well, it was just a 5K. It was just a sprint. As far as goals being relative, what do you have to say to that person who says those things? Like it minimizes what really is showing them that anything is possible. There's definitely a scale of relativity to our goals. And what I would say is we're all at a different stage in achieving those goals. And so what uh, for somebody is, you know, a 5K goal, that may be just as difficult and as challenging in, in that person's world. So nine years ago when I was trying to run a couple miles without without stopping, that was a significant goal for me. And that was very difficult. And it was challenging enough where it took me many weeks to achieve. So the scale there was, you know, many weeks to achieve. And now, of course, I, ha- I do have to, to think about what I say sometimes. And the phrase, it's just a marathon comes out a lot. And that's a very common thing in the ultra marathoning world when you're running 100 or 200 mile races and oftentimes um, you know maybe without a lot of like continued training you just draw on a lot of experience and or you have a, a very strong base of, of um, endurance I would just say we're all in a different stage of our evolution and of our journey and each particular goal may have a different you know process and timeline it's it's really fun for me to, to talk to people who uh, have a big goal and are able to talk about it with a similar intensity of of challenge. You know how how difficult it is for them to to do the training, to put in the work, and to wrap their head around what that ultimate achievement is, whether it be a 5K or um, you know half marathon or an ultra. There's sort of like no 
wrong way to to view a, a big goal like you're always going to be correct in how you feel about the goal and that's what's really important with your phenomenal support um team as a child and growing up and pursuing your goals how important is the ultra running community to you the trail and ultra community is uh is, is amazing right the the friendships, the, the bonds that are built out on the trails are uh, beyond anything I've experienced in any other uh, group environment in that way, in that regard. In many cases, your guard is completely down. You're talking to people, maybe sometimes for the first time, and you're, you're divulging all these deep uh, and oftentimes like, you know, difficult to express the feelings of, of, of maybe dark places you've been or challenges you overcome or celebrating in successes of things you've just done. And so it's, it's a therapy world, right? It's, it's, it's this uh, ability to, to really not feel judged, to, to not feel like there's anything wrong with your path to get to getting to be out there on those trails. It's one of the most, I'd say, accepting environments I've ever experienced or could possibly have experienced in uh, and I do feel like it's it's a different environment. Uh, it's a different environment experience for everybody, but I do get a different feel from the trail and ultra community uh, than I do from any other type of athletic community uh, that I've experienced thus far in such a way that the, the concept of competitiveness being more important than, say, um, you know, the well-being of a person who's out there. And we use this example a lot in the ultra trail community, but... I mean, if someone had a problem or an issue, you're going to stop and ask, like, how are you doing? Is there anything I can do to help you? That is 100% commonplace. And um, it versus maybe in, on a road race, nothing wrong with road races, but there's this element of competition that's very different. And, you know, you might see someone who's struggling and not say anything and just zoom on by. And part of that might just be the size of the field of some of these races, but um, there, there's just something special about it. And I, I think also being a little bit smaller, so we talk about scale again, there's something about those intimate relationships that are built and bonded on the trail, going through a very common, difficult challenge in many cases, in most cases for ultras, that you can easily relate to immediately. And, um, and all those similar experiences that you depending on where you are in your, um, your journey again, have, whether you've done 10 ultras, one ultra, 100 ultras, um, you can relate to and immediately talk about. It's very difficult in life to, to communicate on those levels in other ways without really knowing somebody's experiences. As soon as you get on the trail, you know you've got this common body of experiences to, to draw on, to talk about, to connect on, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. The environment that you just shared, that perspective, do you see do you see a benefit in the sport growing? Obviously, there's a benefit in growing, but the size of events coming from the triathlon world, these events are three thousand people. To the marathon, it's like fifty thousand people. For a trail ultra trail running, we're talking, you know, could be fifty people, hundred fifty people, maybe max of three hundred people that connection could get lost in the scheme of things. What's your take on the growth of uh, trail running? So I can completely relate to that. I've, I've run New York City Marathon a few times, 50,000 plus people. That's a delightful and energizing experience in itself, very different than a 300 person, 100 mile race. 
in the States, which is also very different from 25, 2,600 people towing the line at UTMB, which would be similar to a size of a triathlon event where, I mean, you are shoulder to shoulder with people for almost the entire race. It is uh, a very different experience and, and beautiful and um, interesting in and of itself. I think we have one amazing thing working for us with, with the trail uh, community um, that we don't really have as much control over, which I think will help here. Um, there's a couple things I would say on this, but most trail systems can't handle more than X number of people. Um, and in many cases, the trail races, especially if they're on single track or double track trail through a national forest or, or a state park or something like that, they will have uh, a limit on how many people they'll allow to be on the trail. So there's this beautiful mechanism. Uh, it's not to say that I'm, I'm for limiting use of these trails. Cause I think the trails are there for us to use They're We want that. We want more people out on the trails, uh, respecting the trails, helping to maintain the trails, um, enjoying the trails. But naturally, there aren't going to be so many trail races that are overrun because of size, because of that reason alone. There'll be some shorter races that maybe aren't on some of those state parks or those those public lands, and uh, they they will grow and get larger. Um, The largest 100 milers uh, in the U.S., thankfully, um, there are only a couple that go over, say, 500 people. And, you know, one of them is the Javelina 100, which I've run a, f- a few times out in the desert. There's plenty of space for people. That environment is amazing, even though it's it's quite large. Uh, I think they can get six, 700 people when they do that. They've transformed it with the way they've laid out the space. They have uh, this amazing community camp almost where you run through this camp you're going to run through it five times if you're running 100 mile people are cheering their your crews can hang out and chat with each other it's really like a, almost like a festival to uh, vibe it's a, it's magical on the other side of it you have the leadville trail uh, 100 milers where i got to experience for the first time this year and it was uh, a very different experience a very different vibe it's really hard to even between those two, Leadville being the largest in the country, they had probably 800 plus people and it was an out and back setup. So they had a lot of logistical challenges and issues that um, where you could tell they went beyond what was probably natural for that particular course. Um, that, that course probably should only be handling maybe four or 500 people. Um, and or they should be changing some of the timing restrictions because they're very aggressive on timing uh, because of the out and back nature of the course and the altitude that you're sitting at, they've set very aggressive time cutoffs where in many cases, there's so many people on the trail, you can't really get around other runners. There might be 20 or 30 runners in a row. So if you're trying to hit a cutoff and you're stuck behind a slow train, that could be a, a challenge. So I think a lot of it's rooted in the the race directors and the and the, the the groups that are organizing the events to really think through those types of challenges and make them more accommodating for the runners, so that people have a chance to finish and 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 have a success a successful experience. The intimacy of of the rate of the trail and ultra community, especially in local regions, I don't think there's any there's going to be any um, problem with maintaining that. I mean, there's. Uh, a very specific mindset to to go out and volunteer, to go out and work on the trails. More events is not necessarily a worse thing. I mean, I, I think you introduce additional people to to the trail and ultra community, and you're able to get um, you know maybe even more events. I don't think the current events will necessarily 
be ruined by by any of that kind of growth. Uh, and if anything, it will help provide maybe more opportunities to run different trails, different routes, maybe get more trail maintenance going. Um, that would be the glass half full way to look at that. From a general overall size, like what I hope we don't have happen is big races trying to push through on small trails where there's you know issues of congestion and the experience. So f- from a logistical standpoint, you want to feel like you're out in nature. You want to feel like you're out on the trails, just like you might be on a weekend. You want to encourage the the idea that you're detaching from you know that sort of day-to-day busy lifestyle or the busy uh, your your work world or whatever it is that's maybe more chaotic in your life and and have that chance to connect with nature. The before and after of trail running, the the training part of trail running the meetup groups and all that stuff, that's not going anywhere. That's like the meat of stuff too. That's where you're creating those bonds. Saturday weekend, you know, 20 mile uh, training runs. And, uh, and then after, after runs, um, when you're, you've completed your run, you're out there cheering for other people as they're coming through that finish line. And a lot of times I'll go out and um, I might go to an aid station and see some of my friends come through depending on the distance of the, of the race and so forth. And, you know, really embracing those those moments and um, and connecting with people there. I don't think that's going anywhere. And I think that there's a there's a reverence for the trails and nature, also like a a humbling by nature that we all experience as trail runners, which you're not going to get running the streets of New York City. You're just yeah, it could rain and all of that, but if something happens to the road, they can just throw some more pavement down. One of the things I love about the 100-mile races is that they, and even some of the smaller ones, they require the trail work. They require you to volunteer as a part of your qualification to even show up at the start line. And, And I love that, like giving back to the trail. And the thing is, is that you and I run very different paces, but we can both agree that, you know, Black Mountain is a technical trail. Right. And and that we're up against the same thing. Right. Like Noble Canyon is can be technical. That can be that can be hot. It yeah. can be, you know, very, sandy very and slow and and all of those things. And so there's something about the nature that really levels the playing field. And for somebody who is kinda of like, Oh, I want to get into trail running and you know, I'm I don't know about the groups. What if I'm last? Like I've been first. I've been last. I've been in the middle. Nobody cares. Yeah, exactly. Nobody cares. You don't yeah. care if I'm last. No. Yeah. So I want to get back to the the great eight. You threw in some other races other than just the great eight, like UTMB, like Tahoe 200 in the midst of completing these 800 mile races in one season. So when did it all begin? Yeah, the first race was the Old Dominion, and that was the very end of May, early June, that weekend. And that's a race out in Virginia. It's the second oldest race in the U.S. That race is uh, is really kind of interesting because it's still like a family run, really small group. There's less than a hundred runners, uh, and I and I'm never I'm not really sure why it's like so intimate and small. It might just be the part of the country that it's in, but. Um, beautiful area, rolling hills. It's in the sort of backcountry area in Virginia. I had never had a chance to experience it. It's sort of a couple miles, excuse me, a couple hours southwest of Baltimore, Washington, D.C., that kind of area. Um, 
the haystacks are kind of rolled, like the hills are green. It's just beautiful. So that was early uh, June, uh, late May. Two weeks later, I ran Mohican Trail, uh, 100 mile. And that one was about an hour and a half south of Cleveland in Ohio in a town called Ludonville. And it's, it's, it's sort of staged at this, the, the starting and, and finish area is near sort of an outdoor adventure setup. I think they're even called outdoor adventures or something like that. And there's this lake that's there and there's cabins on the lake. And then there's this beautiful forest state park, I believe with about a 25 mile route of trail and you end up doing it four times. Um, the weather, uh, turned on us to flash flooding and like literally in the middle of the, like maybe after the sun went down it was like flash flood warnings i had um i had some earbuds in i was trying to listen to a podcast while i was out there on my third loop of this race and it kept getting interrupted my phone was getting interrupted by the emergency broadcast system because of the the torrential downpour it didn't stop raining for probably eight hours straight yeah, there were points in that race where the visibility turned into, you know, a few feet in front of you and you're trying to traverse this sort of slick mud ridden trail that was flowing down rivers in this little forest. And um, that was a pretty wild and uh, challenging uh, race to get through, especially the nighttime. Um, I, I felt the most, I think, wrecked after that one. Uh, took me a good 25 or 26 hours or something like that to finish that one. Beautiful park though. The first 50, the first two loops through, spectacular, lush, green. I just, I didn't really know what to expect when I went out there. And it was this amazing surprise. And actually, that's one of the things that was also very exciting about this project was I'd only run one of the eight before. One of the eight races being Angeles Crest, which I had done uh, three times before. It's also one of our local 100 milers in the Angeles National Forest. So Ludonville, I mean, wow, that was an experience. And literally like the next day when I finished and went back to the hotel and showered and everything, I turned on the TV just to relax and the news comes on and it's all flash flood videos of, you know, parking lots and streets underwater. And I'm thinking all these poor folks out here. You know, if they even had an idea what we were doing out in the mountains, like they probably think we're nuts. Do you ever have those moments, like maybe you had that moment in the hotel room where you look back and you're watching the news and you're like, wow, what I actually did was crazy. Yeah, yeah. That, that's how I felt. I'm like, oh my gosh. Uh, the attrition rate was very high. I will, you know, I think a lot of people threw in the towel there and I, understandably it was, um, it was a, a pretty, pretty gnarly situation, especially if it was like your first experience of a hundred miler, it would have been a, a very rude awakening to some degree. I hope it doesn't discourage people from going back and trying again because those trails out there were spectacular um, to the point where I think, you know, I would want to go back just to run a couple loops in those trails again. So so after that race, um, Western States was two weeks after that. And so uh, so I'd gone from Virginia to Ohio and now to, to Tahoe and um, uh, the Squaw Valley area where, of course, the Olympics have been held and... Uh, that was this whole other sort of Super Bowl of 100-mile environments where in the U.S. it's literally the most coveted um, race to get into, first of all, and then to be able to even spectate or to crew or to volunteer, that is in and of itself 
um, almost a gift or a, a, I want to say privilege because that that's not really the right word, but um, there's something just very magical about that race. Also being the original 100 miler, that was amazing. And it was a snow year <clears throat> this year. Yes. So didn't they have to reroute yes. the course a little bit? We were very fortunate in that uh, the course was the uh, original course. They didn't have to do any rerouting. Um, I had been up there for the training weekend, which when we were talking about sort of the trail ultra community bonding experience, I recommend people go and just sign up for that. Even if you don't get into Western States, go for the training weekend. That was incredible. Um, and we had a lot more snow in the training weekend, which was about five or four or five weeks before it was, I think it was the Labor Day weekend or something like that. Um, before Mem the race. Memorial Day. A Memorial, Memorial Day. Day. Thank yeah. you. Uh, yeah, that's right. Labor Day is at the end of summer. So we did have snow. We, uh, the, the race, for anyone who doesn't know, it starts at the bottom of the Squaw Valley, like where the, the main Squaw Valley eateries are and so forth. And you run up the escarpment, we call it, which is essentially up, you know, the Black Diamond slopes for about four miles until you get to the top. A couple of days before the race, my wife and I uh, went out there and about a mile, mile and a half up, there's no snow. There's just, you know, you can see water coming down, rushing down little streams. And, and you get to some patches of snow. And then you get to, okay, we're, we're post-holing now. And it's incredible because this is the end of June in California. The elevation, I mean, we're talking about probably only seven, seven thousand five hundred feet, maybe 8,000 feet. They're able to take these machines, these like, giant snow moving machines and shape the snow to create ski, like skiing opportunities into like the first week of July. And so while we're out on this sort of exploring, exploring the escarpment um, uh, run, hike, uh, mo mostly hiking on the way up and we, we flew on the way down, but um, just flying down the snow which is amazing um and there's a very special way to sort of run where you're 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 getting your heel into the snow so you kind of slide a little bit as you're going that was incredible but the we actually got to witness and chat with some of the people who are shaping these these um ski runs essentially at the top so the last two or three miles were all all snow covered uh, and we we're trying our best not to like you know step on the actual slope because it was going to be, I think, the last one of the last two weekends they were going to have any skiing available for folks up at the top. So that was just, I mean, I didn't even know that was a thing that you would you would start shaping the available um, snow up there. Oh, yeah, those skiers are hardcore, man. It was They're going to go awesome. until like the last green is it, gone. They totally were. Nor they were, would they sure. understand why anybody would want to run up yeah. what they're skiing down. They, they, yeah, they were kind of, they knew about the race, I think. The, guy, the guys who were, uh, there were like three of these giant machines. And it was very fascinating because they would cable into these giant poles because it was so steep. It, it, it would it was like a safety type of protocol and the cable will hold up this giant machine. I mean, we're talking about something that's probably three, four, five times a tractor size with a giant like metal wall on the front of it so it can sh push snow it is wild. But yeah, you could, you could tell they're taken back. They're like, oh, that's this weekend. In their world, they're just trying to make the ski run, you know, work for folks who are going to come out there. But uh, that was a beautiful process of, of kind of going up the slope, watching them is almost an art form, like really, um, to make that work. The next, mo uh, two mornings later, or the next morning when, when, the, when we ran the race, 
all those beautiful, the work that they'd done had iced over. And so when we ran the race, we're, we're on sort of this interesting corduroy patterned because like, I think the, the snow pushers had like some sort of groove at the bottom. So the, the snow, the, the quote unquote trail to get up to the very top, beautiful. I mean, spectacular. Um, there's a tradition where you stop at the top of the escarpment, right? And watch the sunrise and the mm-hmm. pros do it. Like the leaders yeah. do it. And I think that's such a, that's such a beautiful moment of just like, take it in gratitude and really showing what's underneath the competition of the sport. When you turn your head around and look at the sunrise, it is because you are facing away from the sun as you run up the escarpment, the sun's rising behind you. So you can start to see the light creep around and you turn around and it's this bright orange glow. We had a really amazing weather for that, that morning for that sunrise. And the, it's, it's glowing over the lake, Lake Tahoe behind you. It is very magical that the, the elite leaders will take moments like that and embrace them and, and pause and look back. And it's not about, I'm going to beat you onto the single track and get that two-second lead over you. It's, let's enjoy this together. You know, we're, we're a community. There's another 90-something miles to run. Let's not get, worry about, like, missing. Uh, we shouldn't be missing this a beautiful sunrise. That, that is a very special thing. And the community comes out for just that moment. And they'll they'll go out probably at four in the morning or something like that to get up to the top to cheer people on and also enjoy that sunrise, even if they're not running. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. It's, that's so cool. It's spectacular. So, what, yeah, Western States was a, a dream in and of itself. The support along the course is um, unparalleled, unmatched to any other U.S. race. Maybe maybe the Hurt 100 in Hawaii, I have to give them a shout out. Um, they have an amazing like five to one volunteer to runner ratio or something like that. Western States is probably very similar. We didn't talk about this earlier, but my dad was born and raised in Hawaii and there is this aloha spirit. It's a very real thing and it's a very positive thing and everybody is family. That ties um, and really complements this idea of like the trail running community being very encouraging and accepting. And so, yeah, if you have a chance to run the Hurt 100, take it, Um, make it happen, sign up, put your name in the lottery. That is a a beautiful race. And the community is there. Uh, It's really hard to even explain without just saying you have to experience even being there to volunteer is this amazing thing. So there's a uh, great documentary on the Hurt, on the original on the origins of Hurt 100. I, I think it's, I mean, it's definitely on YouTube. In the YouTube, last couple years? They, yeah. They, I, I've watched that, yeah. Yeah, they I even think had, it's just called The Hurt. Yeah. Which is such a great name. Um, I, I'm in there somewhere because I got a, I got to run it in 2017. And, oh, um, when they filmed it? Yeah, I'm in the background of some of the, oh, some cool. of the shots on so, the So yeah, film. I highly recommend if, uh, if you guys don't know what The Hurt is or if you're thinking about it or if it makes your stomach um, feel a certain way like mine just did, then, um, then follow that for sure. Absolutely. Because that, that seems like, and you know, the islands are so, they're, they're very, very spiritual energy there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Kona, the Ironman World Championship is on the big island and, you know, all the, everybody talks about that, like just how powerful it is there. So absolutely. All right. So what happened after Western States? Where'd you go? So yeah, Western was, uh, incredible. Um, had a great, great race there. Got to finish the race with my wife running the last section of the race. Um, 
for for those listening, um, a lot of the longer races will allow a pacer or different pacers to join you. So that was a really special moment to finish on the track with my wife there. After Western States, I had uh, a nice three-week gap until the Vermont 100. And the Vermont 100 was uh, really a, a kind of a question mark for me because I wasn't sure uh, what to expect. And in large part, it was due to the format. They have, this is the only 100-mile race uh, left, as far as I know, in the world where uh, horse riders and horses are are competing on the same exact trail at the same time as the 100-mile uh, runners. And... Um, and I have heard of other races that do big races, like I did a rod, I did a sport uh, where you have, you know, maybe fat tire biking along with running, along with maybe skiing all at the same time. But this was horseback riding, and I was thinking to myself, I had no idea if these trails are going to be overcrowded. If, am I going to be dodging, you know, manure the whole way? Like, what? And these are kind of preposterous maybe sounding uh, to folks who've run it but if you haven't run that and experienced it it was um, a question mark and so the Vermont 100 was uh, it was was magical I mean it was a, a, a beautiful air part of the country first and foremost I mean the northeast New Hampshire Vermont just spectacular and that time of year was very humid and hot. And so that was sort of one of the bigger challenges of the weekend there. Extremely humid. The, the heat index with the humidity got up to the 106 or 108 uh, to the point where folks were commenting. Uh, I mean, that was sort of the headline takeaway. And a 44% finisher rate uh, was a very, very low finisher rate. Uh, and I think majority of that had to do with the heat and the humidity. But the experience of running side by side with with the horse riders, um, they didn't have a start exactly at the same time. To be clear, so we were able to thin out enough on the trails and on the on the fire roads and on the course that the, the horseback riders didn't approach the leaders or the lead groups probably for the first thirty miles or so. And once they did, there was plenty of space for everybody. Um, and there may have been you know a couple hundred runners and maybe um, you know 75 or 50 to 80 I'm gonna guess um, horseback riders and that that was just a really special thing the the challenge I mean I'm sure folks on the horses were looking at the runners like oh my gosh that's a long way to run and I'm thinking to myself I'm seeing people kind of bounce up and down on the horse I'm thinking I don't know if I could sit for that long because I think I would say the average finish time for the horses was probably if they finished um, because of the heat. I think a lot of them had to had to call it a day because the you know you have to think about the not just yourself as a rider but uh, the the actual animal and the and the, the well being of the the animals. Um, and I believe horses uh, the way they breathe is very much tied to the way they stride. And so there's some um, anatomical challenges with keeping them cool and hydrated and everything, but. But, but that experience of being able to kind of look up and, and think, I'm glad I'm running this thing. How amazing is it that they're going to endure 20 hours or so on average to finish? Uh, whereas, you know, running maybe we're taking 24 to 30 hours or whatever it was um, to get through. So um, that was a really beautiful experience. Um, they, they took great care of the animals. You could really tell that the passion of that particular sort of I want to say genre of sport, but um, also takes a very specific, you know, mindset to go out there and 
not only care for yourself, but also you're, you're out there caring for your, your animal as well. So that was, that was wild. Um, really, really glad I was able to, to experience that one. Um, after Vermont, uh, Vermont, uh, was a success. Um, uh, I had another couple weeks until the Angeles Crest 100. And so that was back, um, I say, uh, I'd say that it's a hometown race and that it's only a couple hours away from San Diego in the Angeles National Forest. And so we start just a little bit outside of Big Bear in a town called Wrightwood. And um, it's also a mountain town. And in the, in the winter, it will covered in snow. And um, those, those trails and those mountains are known for... Um, uh, a lot of people hike what's called Mount Baldy in, in Southern California, and um, that's one of um, a, a kind of a common mountain re- um, goal uh, to, to summit there. Um, but we go through this beautiful system of trails. Um, we have a few sections where we have to kind of deviate because of the, some of the endangered species, um, in particular some of the frogs. But the, the course is spectacular, um, very hot and exposed. Early on in the race, you're at altitude higher altitudes and then you slowly go all the way down to um, a town called Altadena which is just outside of Pasadena. That particular race has a pretty strong relationship with the Forest Service and in large part that's due to some of the relationships that have been forged over the years um, by some you know kind of visionary folks in the in the the world of trail and ultras and um, and some really special people who dedicate their time, their free time to help organize things like the trail work that's required. And they'll, they'll set them up on the course. And, um, and we, we have a couple of people who, yeah, just really, you know, they, they take on that responsibility. They, they help do trainings. Like there's people who've been trained to do, um, things like, um, learn how to use chainsaws and um, everything from that to like just the safety precautions of going out there on the trail and using different tools to just showing up like setting the time here's where we meet here's where we're going to go they'll plan on what section we're going to repair or which section needs some brush cleared or whatever it is or some down trees and um, there's just amazing human beings who are who are wired in such a way that they know that that it's, it's the right thing to be doing, take care of these trails. And so in many ways, a win-win. If we don't have the race out there, those trails, they're going to get a little bit of love, but a lot of them won't. And eventually they disappear And if people don't use them and maintain them. So um, there's an incredible positive outcome um, of having a, a trail ra- a run in an area where you, you do want to get that volunteer time out there as well. And if you can connect those two together, um, it's a beautiful thing. So, so, so going back to Angel's Crest, it was for me um, a terrific race. I was able to push pretty hard there and um, chase down because I had run the race before. I knew it really well. It was my fourth time running it. Um, so I was able to chase down a, a pretty decent time there, which I was happy about. And it was kind of the middle of this grade eight. So it was sort yeah. of a, a great... What was your final time? A great moment. Well, I was able to get under 25 hours, which considering having 300 milers in june uh having the legs to be able to do that they give a a race a special buckle um they have a sub 24 buckle which usually maybe 10 people will get in in the race so it's um just a top handful of people and then they they have this extra hour from 24 to 25 and it's almost a celebration of the sunrise it's kind of a twofold thing it's called the second sunrise uh, buckle but um it's sort of acknowledging 
that maybe you didn't get the sub 24 you're going after, which is extremely difficult, but you're not going to give up, right? There's this little additional motivation to keep going. And it's actually the most rare buckle to get because of that. So it, it sort of speaks to, you know, just keep, keep grinding, keep hammering away, keep going for it. And because probably um, most of those people were going for sub 24. Of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Perseverance. A few of us might not have necessarily been trying for that um, realistically like I knew my legs were pretty I had put in a lot of miles in these other races and I knew I, I, first and foremost I need to finish the race um, but you know sometimes you can surprise yourself in, in situations where you least expect it and I think that was one of those moments for me and uh, I just put myself in a good position I was I, I'd say just smart about you know the heat conditions during the day there getting to the hundreds um, and so I was just very smart during the day and I had, I had that burst of energy going through the evening and night and it was an opportunity to push and see how close I could get. So I would say down the road, I probably will try to try to do a sub 24 in, in that particular case. Um, it was a stretch goal for sure to do second sunrise. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was definitely really special. Um, my poor pacer, like he, um, he, he <laughs> we went through a section where he knew it was going to be close and he's, and I, and I was really feeling it. He said, just go, just go fly. And so I, yeah, that was one of those moments. That was one of those moments, unfortunately, where, um, (laughs) where that happened. But um, your fourth hundred of the season, you drop your pacer. (laughs) Makes sense. Okay. So what, uh, what's, what's next? What, what came after? So, yeah, so Crest? from Angela's Crest, we had t- two weeks to get to Leadville. Oh yeah. Um, and the Leadville trail 100, I would say of all of, of the great eight project, it was my, my biggest question mark. I was most concerned about what is this altitude, um, going to do. And it wasn't, Oh, we're going to climb over a certain, um, hike side run up over 12,000 feet in a race before. Um, in Utah, the Tushers 100K, beautiful course, by the way, um, also an Air Viper race, but the the I think we went up to Denali Peak, and that was over 12,000 feet. It was not the highest peak that was a concern. It was the uh, the average altitude that you're running at, which was my my big question mark. Being someone from highest San Diego, town in the U.S., Leadville, it w- sits like at the highest elevation, right? It, it feels like it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you're already like, you're averaging in this ten, eleven thousand foot range of elevation, and for someone from San Diego who um, trains at um, you know six hundred, seven hundred feet altitude, maybe um, above sea level, uh, you know, running over ten thousand feet for the entire race, roughly. Um, was uh, a big mystery. I knew I was going to be fit going in there. I might be tired, but I knew I had uh, sort of the the um, cardiovascular fitness and the strength and so forth. So that was uh, the big question mark. Um, I was able to to go out there feeling pretty tired from my Angeles Crest uh, experience and and how hard I pushed there. So I definitely admit to um, feeling pretty tired from that, but. Um, I managed to squeak by that one was a squeaker for sure. I got to, and I didn't think about this, um, ahead of time. I, I, it's just been such a whirlwind of a summer logistically. I was waiting till like a few days before a lot of races to even look at what the details of the race were to read the race briefings, to look at the maps. 
um, it wasn't like the only race on the the summers where you would immerse yourself maybe in looking at all the details and maybe training specifically for that particular race, um, which a lot of people will do for Leadville. Or they'll live in Colorado where they can train year uh, year round uh, at these you know really high um, altitudes. And if you look at the, the top finishers, um, the top pages of finishers at Leadville, they're all from Colorado. They're all from altitude, high altitude. Ninety um, something percent of them are for sure. It's almost like a mind-boggling thing. You look at it and you're like, okay, to do well here, you, you really need to train altitude. I managed to to get to the halfway point, the turnaround. Um, you have to go up this enormous climb. I think it peaks out at just under 13,000 feet. It's called Hope Pass. The peak itself like, goes up over, I think, 14,000. We don't run quite to the peak. We run over the pass, which is a little bit lower. And um, I get to the turnaround. I'm feeling okay, but you know, it's, I can feel that, that, that climb was rough. And this is the famous Hope Pass conundrum where you go down it and then you turn around, you know, it's coming. So I struggled badly through that section. Um, I think it was a combination of all of it, just, um, all the miles from the other races combined with the altitude. And I wasn't think like I mentioned, I wasn't thinking about cutoffs, but it turned out that I'd, I'd made the cutoff by only an hour at the turnaround. I didn't even, again, I wasn't even thinking of this. And so I get to the top, I get to the aid station there. There's this beautiful aid station. There's, they had llamas. They had to use llamas to get the, the gear up to the aid station there. Really, really amazing. So anyways, long story short, I get to a little further down in the race, maybe 60, 60 something miles in and I come cruising into the aid station. I have a pacer with me by, by the way, too, who's helping me on this section. And my wife comes running over and she sees me come through. She's like, you have 15 minutes. And I'm like, what What are you talking about? It it was dark by now. And I'm worried about like a headlamp or something. I don't know. And she's like the cutoff to get through here and out of this aid station is in 15 minutes. Like we have to go. I had all these plans of taking my shoes off because we had just forded this river. And so my feet are, I have almost the teeth chattering coldness going on because it was like icy cold water. Um, and it's dark now. Uh, anyways, and I immediately like flipped a switch in my head, which was like, oh my gosh, there's, there's really extreme cutoffs here. Um, I'm not usually worried about this kind of stuff. It lit a fire, uh, and I went in and out of that station in a handful of minutes, um, ran out, and just went 100% the whole way to the next aid station. Kind of a little perplexed that that had just happened. It was again, I've I've definitely run races at the back of the pack before, typically while injured, um, but when healthy, I have never even considered that, and this was um, very humbling and. Um, I went as fast as I could, and um, I I banked maybe 30 minutes. So now I have 45 minute cushion. That's still very stressful. Even knowing that you you're even thinking about a cutoff is stressful. Because at this point you probably have what 20 to go. At that point, I probably had yeah somewhere in that range. Yeah. I still had maybe a marathon to run, <laughs> and um, thankfully, um, thankfully, I didn't have any kind of specific injury that was slowing me down or it was just the overall difficulty with altitude and um, I think the again the number of miles uh, my legs had had been been my legs and body had gone through up to that point and um, so it's just a matter of just moving forward Um, and I would I think over the next section I might have given up 15 of those 45 minutes and now I only have 30 minutes you know so I was looking at the clock 
and I had probably had about half an hour when I picked up um, my wife for the last section. She ran the last, uh, I want to say, 10 or 12 miles. She must have been pushing you then. Yeah, so she was keeping me on track. Um, That was another really special um, thing to be able to share that section together. And and one interesting thing about this race, and I didn't know this until the very end, but they allow muling. And muling, it would be considered a disqualifying offense if if you're ever to mule. Basically, by that I mean carry gear or supplies for your runner as a pacer. If you were to do that for your runner, that's cheating. In this race at Leadville, they allow for it. It's actually legal and encouraged. And I kept wondering because I'd see some pacers with these giant packs on their back. Like I saw this one woman. She was a tiny lady. She's got this big guy running with her. And she's got this like pack that's like half her size. It looked like a 50-pound like trekking pack or something. I'm like, what is in that thing? And then uh, reflecting upon it now is like she was carrying all this crap for her runner. Like he must have had a, a, a whole campsite worth of stuff in that pack. It was <laughs> it was pretty uh, wild. But, but anyways, my point being um, – towards the end my wife's like oh you want me to carry your poles and I'm like we, we're not allowed to do that like what are you talking about and then she she kind of filled me in and I'm like oh it makes sense now that's why other people weren't carrying anything and I I had a pack on with all my gear because you want to make sure you have especially for a race like that with the elements and the altitude you're looking at making sure you have a jacket for warmth and all these other uh, things and of course all your hydration but so anyways, probably a little detail that you missed over by yeah, looking at the course a couple days before that would have been good to know um <laughs> i will admit to uh giving my pack to my wife for for the last six miles and i'm it's almost embarrassed it's a it felt embarrassing in and even to, to say it now it's but she muled for me for the legally muled um because it's allowed for six miles, it was amazing. It yeah, felt so good yeah, knowing that I was that. I was up against those cutoffs, and um, here she is. She's got her pack on, and then she puts on my pack on top of her pack, and um, I mean, she's amazing. But um, that was a really unique experience. I don't think we'll ever go back to that race for a lot of different reasons, but um, that was a yeah, it was a special one. So what came after Leadville? So after Leadville, um, we flew out to UTMB, oh, which right. I refer to as a cherry on top um, of this grade eight project. It's not part of the grade eight. It's li- literally like the Olympics of ultra running. Is of that mountain a lottery running. system? How do you get into or is Yeah, it a- it's a lottery system that and has a-, a qualifying standard. Yeah. Um, the qualifying standard uh, over the last few years has been for the UTMB, which is the, lo- the longer of, of the races, the big race. That one actually would require two to 300 mile races to finish two to 300 mile races to get points to qualify and you need enough um, points and you can only do it for three races max. So it had to be basically hundred milers or a really hard hundred kilometer races. Since the most of the world uh, is a, on the metric system, the, the difficult hundred K would get you maybe five or six points and a hundred miler, a difficult hundred miler might get you a six points. So you needed 15, I think. You could you could get a maximum of 18 points. And then that would let you get into the lottery. So anyways, that was literally like 10 to 12 days after finishing Leadville. I ran yeah, this UTMB. This is a bit of like a crunch here because you've got Leadville, UTMB. Yeah. And then just a, what, like four days, five days later, you're Wasatch. doing Wasatch. Yeah. UTMB was at the very tail end of August. It was two weeks after Leadville or 12 days after finishing Leadville. 
UTMB, I could just very briefly say is again, like the Olympics or Super Bowl of hundred mile races in the world. And, um, you've got hundreds of runners from France, hundreds of runners from Italy, hundreds of runners from Switzerland, hundreds of runners from Europe. You've got 2,600 runners in total just for that particular race, towing the line at what is the biggest hundred miler in the world. It's uh, the pomp and circumstance of the start line is just um, unlike anything I've ever, I could ever describe. If you've watched the footage, just imagine being immersed in that world. Um, the whole first m couple miles, unless you're in the first 50 people that can actually run through the streets, you're basically walking through a parade of 25 2600 other runners until it opens up and everybody's cheering every every door window every um, of all the little buildings of this town um, everyone's yelling cheering videoing the energy on the street is just um, uh, amazing it's electric and they have this very dramatic music that's playing because they're gonna they're sending us off on this journey which uh, has a 45 to 46 hour cutoff. We're not talking about a 30 hour, 100 miler. It's, a, it's similar to how the Hard Rock 100 will, will give you this immense amount of time. And it's because you're running over 10,000 meters of vertical gain and descent, um, which is about 34,000 feet of climbing. Um, and honestly, you need, I mean, in many cases, you'll need that time. Um, it's just, it's, it's incredible. The descending uh, at UTMB going downhill, you would think is, oh, relief, I got to go downhill. The, the, the downhills were more aggressive um, and or just as aggressive as the very steep uphills and um, very challenging. And over, you know, that many hours of time, um, your legs feel that. I mean, your legs feel that. And then if you've run 600 milers the couple months before, your legs really feel that. And um, But it, it was an amazing experience. Um, I, I, I'd say that's, that's probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite race that I've ever done. Um, and it's my second time. So that, that was extremely special. We spent uh, some time in Switzerland exploring um, parts of parts of that country which are spectacular the race of course goes from france to italy to switzerland circumnavigating mont blanc it's it, the mountain range is covered in glaciers and cover and the trail systems there every every trail system almost every trail system in europe that we've experienced so far is is going through someone's like property or yard or something like that and it's encouraged it's very different than the, the states where it's like do not do like um, don't go on my property, right? Yeah, we just heard somebody was blocking Mission, off the trail over Mission, at Mission uh, Trails. Yeah, here in San Diego, it's crazy. <laughs> it's it's it, and it's so different over there. It's like here's the trails we marked for you. Come through the gate here. You want some food? Like it's a very different. It's world. so interesting how we have this idea that we own parts of the earth. Yes, we don't own anything. Yes, it's such a falsity. It's 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 bizarre. And it, so if you have a chance to go. Um, and experience the the Mont Blanc trail system. They actually have a beautifully marked trail system, so you don't have to run the race to do this. I think you could go out for three or four days, run like you could go for a week and t run ten or fifteen miles a day. Go back into town. They have all these refugios on the trail, and people will you know you can get beverages, meals, you can take a shower. It's a beautiful experience, and it's yeah, it's the Trail du Mont Blanc. It's a spectacular. Um, 
So yeah, that's one of my favorite places. Uh, Switzerland was beautiful as well. We got to experience um, like the Matterhorn um, little town called Zermatt where nobody has a car. It's like an all electric, almost golf cart vehicle type of town and you take a train into it and it's just, um, it also has views of Monta Rosa. So this entire mountain range that separates Switzerland and Italy it's mind-boggling how beautiful it is. And there's all this rich history of people who, quote-unquote, you know, conquered these mountains or the first people to, you know, climb them and adventure and explore. And it's, it's all very inspiring. So that was a whirlwind. We got through, you know, UTMB, um, got to experience a little bit of, of Switzerland this time, which was unique. In the past, we've, been, we've spent time in Italy, which we love. And then it was back to Wasatch. So I finished UTMB. Uh, I think it, it was on Sunday. It feels like you're inventing time. You're like, we had time in Italy and Switzerland. And then I went to Wasatch. Like, it was days. Yes. It was days. Yes. So like, we had. Between UTMB and Wasatch. And yes. jet lag. Yes. But at this point, I mean, is fatigue just fatigue? Like, it just. You've got this relationship with fatigue that it's your norm, I would assume. I definitely had the experience of fatigue. Um, I would be a fatigue pro of some sort, whether I'd like it or not. Yeah, for sure. Um, I had done a few back-to-back weekends in the past. Um, I had run, for example, the Tahoe 200 and followed by the Mogion Monster on back-to-back weekends, and I knew how how that felt. Um, I had maybe three or four other experiences in ultra running where I had run a 100-miler on multiple consecutive week, like a mountain hundred miler, not a flat hundred miler, but back to back weekends of that and knowing how my body felt, of course, with that summer leading up to, um, UTMB to Wasatch, I, I knew how all those moments were, were feeling. Um, Wasatch is no joke. Wasatch is no joke. So how did that, how did that go? And that was, that one started on a Friday. Thank you, uh, for doing that Wasatch. So I have one less day, you know, a lot of these will start on a Saturday, of course, but I had like a little foot issue that I was dealing with, um, kind of like the top of the foot where I had, I think I had like hyperextended something. So I'd finally had like some little issue. Um, and it, it came out of Angela's crest. I had like a little moment out there and uh, I managed to get through Leadville, managed to get through UTMB, but I could feel it and, and Wasatch. That was a very, very difficult start, I would say. Um, you literally start a couple miles flat and then you just start getting into some big climbs. Like they, it's almost like felt like a four mile climb. I don't know, it was probably 4,000 feet of climbing or something like that, um, right out the gun. Beautiful area. So this is situated in, just outside of Salt Lake, um, really close to um, Park City, Utah, which is another Winter Olympic venue, so just a beautiful mountain range. Got through uh, bits and pieces of Wasatch, okay to begin with, but it was a, it was definitely a struggle. I could feel the weight of Leadville. I could feel the weight of well UTMB, and um, I could feel even Angela's Crest all the way back to that. I'd say that point. But I had the experience to draw on. I knew what it was going to take to get through this after being out there for a little bit, and I knew I had. Uh, I had some amazing pacers lined up for the second half of the race, so I was going to have some support out there. Um, and so I, you know, I, w- I was just taking it one step at a time. Managed to get to see, you know, my my first uh, pacer. 
I think that was about mile 46. They allowed pace kind of early in that race. Usually it's at least 50. It might have even been like mile 42 when I picked up the pacer. Or maybe even 30-something. It was early in the race, and I was really surprised about, about that. But I was thankful for it. Um, and so my friend Tara uh, was out there. She's a local to the area uh, of those mountains and within, you know, half an hour drive to the start line, maybe a little closer and um, just a total badass um, runner. She, she had, she was the top three, she was a third place American at UTMB last year. So to give you reference in a very challenging weather year for UTMB, which typically is the case. So anyway, she was helping me through we just, you know, you get a little bit of momentum. You listen to your body. You you just keep moving forward. Um, little little sort of quote unquote pro tips. I mean, you you try to avoid any wasted time. Um, and by wasted time, I mean just unnecessary time spent lingering in an aid station, for example. Because um, at that point, all the minutes were going to matter for me. I think I had 36 hours to finish, but again, I didn't know how the foot was going to hold up. Um, the foot is fine at this point, but at that point it was, it was sort of this weird overuse feel where I, I knew I kind of overstretched something and it just needed, you know, like a week to heal or something like that. So she got me through and into about 67. So it's almost like they broke in, out the pacing into thirds, something like that. And when I got to that point, um, I knew that I was, I knew I was going to be able to finish in terms of the time. And it was just a matter of like, how quickly can we get through the last part of this race? So I picked up my pacer and this is in the middle of the night. Um, my friend Bree, who is amazing. She's also local, very, um, close. She lives really close to the finish line. So it was this really amazing dynamic. And, and actually they pretty much knew everybody at the race. It was just this really, I think I had the pacers who are the most popular in the entire state of utah i was telling them like you guys are you guys know everybody every time we bump into someone like oh hey hey tara hey Bree, that energy was amazing as well like just the energy of knowing there's all these connections everybody has who's there is there for this like amazing purpose to help all these runners get through and i was just so very fortunate to have that support um and uh and that opportunity to be able to do that um and so we we were out there the first little bit i think i was struggling but then in the early morning, I started to really pick up the pace, started to find a little bit of a groove. And that's one of the beautiful things about these distances is you're going to have these low moments. You're going to have high moments. And, you know, if you're in a low moment, there's going to be a high moment around the corner. You just have to think that way. And when, when it comes, like you need to take advantage of it and, and enjoy it and embrace it. And that was one of the most fun sections I've, I've run. And we were just blasting down these single track um, sections um, probably 80 miles into the race um, all the way to the finish I mean we were quote-unquote flying legs had been through 80 miles already you know in most cases uh, the feeling of going fast might be only like 10 minute miles or something like that in this case we were we were going probably sub sub eight maybe down to sub seven miles like it was legitimately a decent speed for that point in the race and what was it was incredible was um, I had I had the just the right person to be with to go through that experience. Someone who's like super positive and just both of my pacers are just incredibly strong, powerful, and and energizing. And but their somehow their strengths were I had 
they were pacing me at the right time and it was pure luck like it was just they worked out that way this whole thing has just been so perfectly orchestrated right and I think a lot of that has to do with your ability to walk into the unknown and trust Right, like even this organization yeah. of how these pacers came in during certain miles. Those were the sections they wanted to pace, and it was perfect. It, yeah. I could not, if it was the other way around, I mean, not to say it wouldn't have been great, but the way it was, it was just, it was the right way. And because uh, in many cases, if I pick up the pace, I might, I might lose my my my, my pacer, um, especially if I catch him off guard by just out of nowhere going really fast. Every once in a while, that will happen, and I, I kind of feel bad. In this case, Brie, she kept up the entire 50K she was pacing. She knew I was booking it to try to hit this sub-30 mark. They did. They do different buckles for 24, 30, and 36. I didn't think I would even have to worry about this. I thought, I'm just going to finish under 36, no big deal. But we were pushing hard enough at that point where even with you know, having done UTMB and, and, and being on really spent legs, uh, we were still able to summon up these pretty quick speeds at the end and I didn't know this is part of your you know your comment about the unknown I didn't know what the last five miles looked like I had no or 10 miles or 12 12 miles it was just go just go and as soon as I was felt that and we were going a little reckless down some cow pasture type trail that they had taken us through to get down to finally this fire road at the end and it was like kind of a little uphill near a lake and just you know pretty but I didn't know where the finish line was. I didn't know if it was five miles because a lot of hundred mile races are not hundred miles. Exactly. They're 101, 100.5, 102.3. Who knows? Like, and I didn't know. Um, and there's no mile markers. There's no mile markers. <laughs> you know, your, your GPS watch will give you a decent estimate. But again, if you don't know you how perfect yeah. your lines were, you know, there's, you can't, it's and you not, can't bank on your watch for like, I'm almost done. Yeah, exactly. So this is a, a moment where not knowing the course, I probably helped me because it was it was probably an unrealistic goal to get under 30. Or it was like at the edge of what was humanly possible for me to achieve in that moment. And it turns out with like 10 miles to go, we pit, we bump into another runner. Uh, this incredible runner from, um, I want to say she's from Minnesota. And she's out there running. And, she, and you could tell she maybe she wasn't going to, go for it at the end. And this is actually a really cool part of the story. She kind of hooks up with us. So I have a pacer and she doesn't. We all kind of start running and we're pushing each other, the three of us. All three of us are going, um, you know, at that point, maybe sub 10 minute pace, maybe sub nine minute pace, probably under eight minute pace in many sections. And we're still pushing through the uphills. I mean, no one cares what how fast we finish. No one cares what our finish times are, honestly. Um, but it's just this like, desire to try to achieve and fulfill like whatever the best is that we feel like we can in the moment let's get it done let's get it done as quickly as we can and maybe there's this chance of getting under that 30 you know hour barrier that's again just a personal thing it's like well it's something to shoot for maybe you didn't set your own time goal but they've set one for us let's just let's just see what happens so we're pushing each other i'm leading this pack you know i, I dropped my pacer but it was i was going all out uh, as fast as I could go and then this other runner she's incredible by the way um, has run all these amazing races and her husband was out there also running she was way ahead of her husband and they're both like incredible runners 
So she's pushing, I'm flying the downhills. And so I, I led all the downhills until we got to this fire road and it started to flatten out and get go on this uphill climb. If anyone's run the Wasatch Front 100, you probably don't like this last five miles is all I'm gonna put out there. The, the race was spectacular and beautiful until that part of the course. You could have just had the finish line like, you know, at the lake or something. But anyways, we go through it. It's just this never ending road. She starts to hammer on the uphill. She's got really good climbing capabilities. My legs are just toast. And so now she passes me. This is the other, the other, the three of the three of us. So I'm just now chasing her and she's like maybe 10 seconds ahead, 15 seconds ahead. We go a couple more miles. She's like 30 seconds ahead. And I'm like, where's the finish line? Oh my gosh. We finally get to, and the, the course marking started to get questionable at the end. Like it was almost like you just had to know which way to go. So we're not seeing any other people. Anyway, she keeps pushing and she gets in like a minute under the 30 hour mark. And I, and I had fallen back a little bit and I think I got two minutes, I finished like two minutes over. But to me it was collectively, neither one of us were gonna get under 30 if both of us hadn't teamed together and pushed. If the three of us, excuse me, and my my pacer was incredible. Like I, so and, I mean, without pushing, that could have been an hour. Slower. Yeah. Oh, easily. Yeah, right. Easily, like, you could just choose to walk the last. Because oh, at, at a certain point, if you don't, if there was no motivation that you found deep inside to just push, and you didn't have that like right. different buckle or whatever goal, then yeah, I mean, there's no difference. Because again, no one cares. Like if you get 30 hours and two minutes, or 35 hours and 59 minutes. It's all I know is it's getting hot, and I'm like, I want to finish. You know. So there's also this like satisfaction of like you smell the barn, you want to just you want to just cross the finish and fall to the ground and be in the shade, you know, maybe have something cold to drink and then just, um, you know, chat with your friends who finished and, and watch people come in and all that stuff, all the, all the good stuff after you finished. So, but as I say to people who are like on the side of the trail, I always say, there's nobody coming for you. Yeah. Like nobody's coming for yeah. you. You've got to get to the finish line, yeah. get up. Like you got to keep moving. Um, so, okay. So you've got, you've got one more to go and that's, what, that's not this weekend, is it? Not this weekend, but so, so yeah. So after Wasatch, we ran Tahoe. Right. Tahoe 200, um, a whole nother story. And then um, that was two weeks ago. And um, I'm one week out. So next weekend, first weekend of October is the Arkansas Traveler. And that is the eighth of the grade eight. Amazing. This is like, this is just, I mean, I feel like, we could dive into Tahoe 200 and that could be a whole other podcast. Absolutely, um, yeah. But uh, just amazing feat that you have dreamed up and succeeded at. I mean, you really have already achieved incredible success. So, um, gosh, like I said, you guys, if you haven't, uh, if you're not following Sean, definitely follow him, Ultra Runner SD on Instagram. That's where you're most active, right? Yeah, for sure. And gosh, any, any words of wisdom, anything that comes to you to um, encourage those to maybe dream big or go longer or sign up for that first 5K, whatever it is. Yeah, I would say for sure, think about taking that first step. Actually, don't think about it. Just take that first step. Don't worry about having everything figured out. Um, in a lot of cases, I would say, you know, if, if the goal is a distance, find a race, sign up for the race. And figure everything else after. Um, figure out step two. Once you got step two, you'll figure out step three. 
reach out to the community, you know, reach out to me, reach out to your, your friends who you know run, ask questions, be curious. Um, you know, no matter what it is, you know, you can always go and try it again. Like, so even if the first one isn't a success or even if it is a success, there's a good chance you're going to want to see like what else there is naturally and, and embrace that. Uh, and, and enjoy it because it's um, it's we think about the finish line as like this ultimate goal, but really it's it's the adventure and the journey and everything that happens in route to that. Amazing. Well, we're gonna put links to all these races that you've done. Uh, link to you how people can get a hold of you, how people can follow Jenny, who's walking in the door now from her run. She's no joke. That's right. <laughs> and I know she's been right by your side for many, many of these miles and the dreams and, and all those dreams coming to fruition. You guys are amazing. So just uh, keep going. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you guys.